Well, I, I work for Voice of the Martyrs, and so I go to a, by a different name at times. Oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but you, I'm, I'm I'm Joe. Nice to meet you guys. We've actually interviewed a few people who go by different names at times. Yeah. So, what do you want me to put on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Joe is fine. Joe Fleming is fine. Okay. <laughs> well, hey, I'm Brian. So nice to meet you, Brian. David and Cheryl are my parents. Yes, sir. And Corey who's already introduced himself. So tell us a little bit about you, Joe. Well, I, um, I live here in Virginia and I've got a wife and two daughters. Uh, we, uh, we were missionaries in uh, South India and, and West Africa and just got back in July of 2019 from, uh, from West Africa. Hang on. I got to get some volume going. Well, maybe it's me, brother. I apologize. There we go. No, 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 no. You're good. This will be fun for everybody to listen to later anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Brian, Brian has this, this thing where he doesn't like to edit. Yeah. So he just, he just pushes record and people have to listen to our, our bantering at the beginning of podcasts. And, and I've, I've discovered that if he says something stupid, somehow that finds its way edited out. But if, <laughs> but if I say something stupid, if I say something stupid, it's like the opener of the show, right? So it's the, that's the power you get. I, you get I don't know what you're talking about, Corey. Also, you have never once volunteered to edit anything. Exactly. So I can't complain. I'm, I'm, good, I'm good with it. I, it's just an observation. I hey, Corey, I've had friends like that too, brother. I understand. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the camaraderie. Air, air quotes, friends like that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Let's go back. So, Joe, you spent uh, how many years in West Africa? I was there a little over three years, three years, two months. And then you were in India before that? I was in South India first for three years. And uh, that was from April of, uh, I actually went with the IMB in January of 2013. And uh, after training, ended up uh, in the southern part of any Karnataka mm -hmm. uh, in April of 2013. Uh, and then was there, my end of my term was, our term was January of 2016. And then went to West Africa, April of 2016, and was there to July of 2019. Okay. A lot of okay. Yeah, yeah. So, what was uh, what was life prior to 2013? Well, I was a police officer. I was in the Marine Corps, and after the Marine Corps, I got married uh, to my wife, Melissa, and uh, I uh, got into law enforcement. Retired from law enforcement, and the Lord called us to the mission field, and we've uh, been doing that ever since. That's cool, man. And then, so 2019, and now you said you're with Voice of the Martyrs as well. So, what's yes, what's that role like? I'm the field leader for West Africa. So uh, I've got that region as uh, to kind of uh, come alongside the local churches there and uh, assist them as they go through persecution. Okay. How deep can you go on telling us what you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, the uh, uh, really, if you, if you get down to the core of it, Brian, it's just uh, we're, we're um, we work solely uh, with the indigenous churches in those in that region of West West Africa, uh, which would include from basically south of Martania uh, down to east uh, to Niger, mm -hmm. and then south to Ghana, Togo, and those countries around the right around the western part of 
of Africa, uh, West Africa. And so we work with the indigenous churches and, the, you know, the countries now that are worse, uh, that as far as persecution is concerned, that we're spending most of our time in would be um, Burkina Faso mm-hmm. and Mali and Niger. That's the, that's the three big countries now that are in their the local churches are enduring a, a lot of persecution there. So when you, I don't know, I have this kind of question forming in my head when I sent you a note about doing this podcast, you know, we talked a little bit about obedience-based disciple-making. And one thing that we haven't really hit, even though we've interviewed some people from the international context, uh, Middle Eastern countries, is just the level of persecution, uh, where that comes in. Corey, maybe you can form this question better, but I'm just curious about, you know, what does it look like when those two worlds collide? We're asking people to be obedient to Jesus follow him and these new rhythms and these new ways. But persecution is a significant part of your life and what you're going to face. Like that's not, that's not in the framework and the filter of the Western context. We talk about persecution because somebody disliked our Facebook post about Jesus or something, you know, and it's like, this is a, but when the, when obedience comes in line with persecution, like talk about how those things collide and your experience with that. As you're saying that, a couple of things pop into my head, um, just some real life things that happened uh, that, that may be of interest to you or to those that listen to this. Um, and you, you nailed it. I think persecution in the West, it's just not understood as what our brothers and sisters go through overseas as they're, especially as they're obedient with the gospel. Um, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm completely sold on reproducible discipleship training and the way God multiplies this kingdom, just from what I see God doing with it when it's applied correctly. So um, when you do that uh, and, and you have to work through the local church, you can't be a parachurch organization. You have to work through the local church. And as the church catches fire and sees its, you know, sees that what the scriptures say about disciples being involved in the great commission, that's every disciple, every disciple is a missionary and you train them to do that with lots of accountability and, and those components that lead to multiplication. Um, persecution always seems to follow that. It always seems once they get into the field and they're obedient, persecution comes. And uh, I was in South, when we were in South India, my, I think it was my third year there, we were in a house church in a strong Muslim area. And we had asked the, you know, the pastor had said, you know, one of the training and we were training and it was really multiplying. And um, we asked him, there was a day that uh, there's a part of the training has to do with actually going out and, and, and sharing the gospel. And we had said, hey, let's not go out. It's, it's, there's mosques just, you know, within 100 meters of this little house church. And he said, no, no, I, I think we need to go out. So they did. They did go out. Uh, and uh, there was, it was amazing to watch how so many Muslims had never heard the gospel, were very receptive to it. In fact, a school teacher some of these students went into a school, shared the gospel with the students during their time out, and the school teacher came and got a box of New Testaments that we brought in Urdu, which would be the Muslim language uh, that they were speaking. Well, we left, and within an hour, they came. Uh, the imam came from the um, from the mosque with a mob, and they beat the pastor badly. Mm. Uh, and then the police came and arrested him. Um, <clears throat> I heard it about it that evening when I was in another village training. Um, they released him. They wanted to know who the missionary was, who came, who was a national partner, who they were connected with. He didn't tell them. Uh, they came back that evening, brought him to the police department again and beat him badly. Um, 
and we had had some Jesus films in their heart language. And um, they took one of the Jesus films and brought all the imams together with the police, with the pastor and said, we want to watch this because we know, we know you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. And so they all watched the Jesus film together. So all those imams got to watch the Jesus film and hear the gospel. Wow. And now that would have never happened. You, you see how God twisted, turns things into so bad, but yet so good. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really a neat story. And the pastor rejoiced in that. I got, we got to see him later. We helped him with his hospital bills. And, but he rejoiced in the fact that these imams who have never listened to the gospel, God used this, that these men could hear the gospel along with police officials. So persecution undoubtedly comes when you're obedient, but God uses it for good. Mm. Amen. Man, it, it feels like, feels like obedience. I, I don't know how else to, to see and produce disciples with that kind of boldness, that kind of like, all right, I'm all in like what, what Jesus is, has is better. What he's calling to me, calling in my life is more, you know, like just, just to have a, I don't know. We use this, this idea a lot of just kind of this content-based discipleship that we tend to use a lot in America, right? We know a lot of things, but we may not be all that sold out with our lives. Just, I, I don't know. You said obedience tends to lead to persecution, which is not exactly a great tagline for us if we're really trying to get people to be obedient, right? So that the beauty of this is like, man, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it with our lives. And we can't necessarily think our way into that kind of sold out life. I mean, what is that kind of consistent with what you're saying? Uh, you nailed it, Corey. You nailed it. It's true. They, we, we, have, we have such access to knowledge in the West but we, we just don't have training to put it into practice. They have such a zeal for Christ because so many of them have come from animist or Muslim or Hindu backgrounds, and they're just so excited about their faith and they want to share it, but they don't necessarily know how uh, and how to be involved in the Great Commission because they don't have the tools. They've never been shown how. You show them how, and it just turns into radical obedience. And then you see the gospel and, the, and that God's kingdom just multiply. And I, we're missing something in the West, and it's that zeal. Joe, can you, what, can you talk about the tools that you use? Like what are, when you start to mention, like if you just show them how to do this or do that, give them some equipping, like what does that look like in those contexts? Yes, sir. I, so <clears throat> when, I, when I first got to India, Brian, I, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I was, uh, I didn't know about reproducible discipleship training. We didn't learn about it in training. And so we get there. And um, I, one of the things that I was struck by India was that it's just, you know, it's just so many people. I mean, it's just vast uh, and there's such vast lostness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an old IMB missionary, uh, and I, I think I can say his name, Dwayne Falk, your dad and mom know him well. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he showed me how to be a trainer. He said, look, Joe, you're, you're, never, gonna, you're never going to reach vast amount of people uh, and, and affect lostness um, if, if you don't employ training up every disciple to be a missionary to the mission field God's given them. Mm-hmm. And this has to go through the local church. And, so, and, and in that training, you have to uh, have tons of accountability where you're setting goals that each week they're out sharing the gospel each week they're retraining what you teach them make that long term have a long-term touch in their life model for them assist them watch them and then release them to do the work Mm. Um, and so he showed me a tool and i began to use it It was called tree of life 
uh, is what we use there. It was started in uh, by George Tupper, which was uh, another IMB missionary, and it it uh, came from. I think he started initially in Bangladesh. He came to East India, and we took it to South India. After it was shown to me, it's a ten-month reproducible training strategy that really focuses on um, not only uh, it's a twofold because it strengthens the church as you give them simple but yet biblically sound doctrinal simple lessons they can reproduce so you're actually strengthening the church and rooting them in the word of god but at the same time you're meeting with them sometimes weekly for 10 months setting uh, they have to be out sharing the gospel with at least five people a week they have to be reteaching two other smarting starting small groups and those small groups grow into churches and as you do this for 10 months and you're teaching them systematically basically the fundamentals of the faith uh, and showing them that through scripture that God has a role for them as missionaries. Every disciple is a missionary and that the national missionary really is the best missionary. One of the things, and please forgive me, Brian, if I'm talking too fast or too much, just cut me off. You just keep going. Good stuff. One of the things that they have that in West Africa and in South India, that, that because of the influence of Western missionaries is the idea is that missions are left to the pastor and left to the missionary. Mm -hmm. And that sounds familiar. Yeah, so we've, yeah, it's not much different in the West. And so uh, that, had, that had led to a, uh, a, you know, a, a congregation that was not engaged in the Great Commission. They may be excited about their faith, but they never saw their role in actually being engaged in the Great Commission. So <clears throat> once you show them and show, give them how to share the faith, how to share, not only how to share their faith and how that God had given them lost people around them, whether it's their schoolmates or their family or their neighbors, that when they start coming to, when they are seeking or they come to faith through their witness, as the Lord uses them, that you can actually give them tools. They can begin to disciple them. They can begin to disciple them in their homes. These lessons that you're learning, you can reproduce it to others. And what we saw happen very rapidly was once they saw, this is the one thing about there's a big separation between the West and the Eastern or the indigenous church overseas is they see it in the scriptures and that's enough. Mm-hmm. They're not going to debate that. Mm-hmm. It's what it says, it's what it means, and that's what we must be doing. Once you show them their role and how, if you love me, you obey my commands. My command is to go with the gospel. As you go, make disciples, baptize, and then train and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. They get that. And you show them how, and they all of a sudden they see God using them. So you have a, a, a mom at home who's got a child, and she's friends with other moms in her village. But now she knows how to share her faith. She's the only Christian in her village. She begins to share. This happened repeatedly as they're doing laundry down by the river. And she's sharing the gospel because she's been trained how. And she's going to be held accountable next week when she comes in. We're going to ask her, did you share share the gospel with five people? And next thing you know, you have within three or four weeks, you have two or three of these women come to faith in Christ. Well, now she's trained how to teach them in her home. Mm -hmm. Simple lessons of how to go back into the mission fields that they have and how to share the gospel. What we saw begin to happen in West in uh, South India was a rapid multiplication of new believers. Once we began to train in different locations through the local churches and the churches put it into practice, we began to see in the first year we saw about 5,000 new believers and about almost a thousand baptisms and about 200 new churches. That was in the first year we were there. And so we thought, wow, you know, they're really getting it. So we expanded it into not only the local churches, but we also expanded it to some of their local missions. They had some local missions like the Indian Baptist Society, Mm -hmm. um, 
Campus Crusade for Christ was there. We began to train their trainers. And to, they had never seen a tool like this. And so once we gave it to them and they had already had networks and local churches to go back and begin training, man, it just exploded. In three years, it, we know we had an accountability process uh, that, you know, each time they're coming in weekly and how many did you share with, how many did you teach? And then once we saw house groups begin to form or new believers, we would actually send trainers out to verify it, to make sure that it was real and not something that was made up. We only wanted to, you know, we wanted, if it wasn't working, we wanted to be able to correct it where it was. Uh, but the Lord was in it. And uh, within three years there, we can verify 30,000 new believers, 10,000 wow. baptisms and Crazy about 3,500 new churches and home groups. That's what we can verify. It just exploded. And it was all through simple biblical lessons over a long, over a 10 month training period that builds the foundation of the faith of the disciple. You know, everywhere from how to share your faith, what Christ says about the Great Commission. Once we come to faith, our assurance of salvation, how, you know, it goes from, you know, how the great, you know, the focus on the Great Commission all the way through, you know, spiritual gifts in the church and, you know, ecclesiology and all those things, but very simple. And, and, it, and, and, and it sounds like it might be too complicated, but a lot of it's pictures mm-hmm. and a lot of it, uh, it's bathed in scripture. So it doesn't go outside the scriptures. We stay founded in that. And, and so what you see, what you see happening over 10 months and each time they're coming in and you're telling, Hey, have you shared, have you taught, or you started a home group, those that aren't going to put it into practice are just going to leave. Mm-hmm. They're just going to obedience is the filter. So there's a filtering process that begins to happen as you train up disciples in this simple, systematic way. And so those that are going to be obedient and get, you know, God uses God uses them, they'll keep coming back and because they're excited. And those that aren't and aren't interested in it just won't come back. So you may start with 30 and end up with 10. Mm-hmm. But those 10 are good soil. Yeah. And I there there's some. And again, stop me if I'm talking too much, please. I'm passionate over it, so I tend to talk a lot about it. Like, um, there, I've heard people say that that uh, my brothers and I love them dearly, and they say, "Well, you know, this multiplication train really isn't. Where do you find it in the scriptures?" And I would just beg to them, it's all through the New Testament. Mm-hmm. If you if you look at Acts 19, 8 through ten, if you look at that, it that's multiplication. Paul comes to Ephesus. He stays, goes to the synagogue. He gets run out basically because they reject. He goes to the school of Tyrannus for two years, and it says all of Asia heard. Well, that's in two years. If you do the historical workup, well, that's six to eight million people. That's modern-day Turkey. Paul doesn't leave Ephesus, it appears, during that two years. Well, how did six to eight million people have access to the gospel in two years? He trained them, and he trained those to train others. And those trained others and those planted churches and trained others. And they went with the gospel. You see a multi- that that is that is a good example of how the kingdom of God spreads through obedience based training through his local church. And so another another foundational thing that we found there as we talk about this filtering and finding the good soil. If you look at Matthew 13 and, and, we, and we see the parable of the soils. And as the as the as the seed of the gospel lands on the hearts of men, there's only one good soil. And the Lord says those multiply 160 and a 30 fold. So when you train, that's who you're looking for. Those that that are faithful and those who stay are those that will multiply the kingdom. And God uses them that way. And I I think and it's interesting because in Mark four, when the disciples didn't understand it, Jesus said, you don't understand this parable. How are you going to understand the rest of them? He put special emphasis on that parable. 
because that there's multiplication in those that will be faithful. Mm-hmm. God uses it that way. God never uses one plus one. I mean, not that one plus one is bad, but God seems to use to multiply his kingdom is, is through this, through, through multiplication and through training up the local church that multiplies his kingdom the fastest. And if the training is good and it's doctrinal, it's not superficial. Mm-hmm. That's another argument. It's superficial. It's not superficial if you bathe it in scripture. And so, um, that's the, so that's the tool we, I know there's other, you know, there's four fields and in, in India, they had what they call rad rapidly advancing disciples. But if you look at all the training strategies, they basically are the same, mm-hmm. basically have the same components in it. Um, but tree of life's a little longer. That's why we chose it. It was, it, you have a longer touch with those nationals that you want to, you know, you want to grow intimate with them. You, you know, you do life with them as much as you can. Um, you talked about persecution a while ago and I just want to give you the story um, because Corey was touching on it a while ago. Um, one of some of the biggest, most faithful were young, young ladies, young ladies. Cause, um, once God began to use, they were just such evangelist. Mm. Um, and there was a young lady, she was just a kid. I mean, for me, I'm 53. So she's about 20, she was 24. Um, and she, when we trained her, she just got on fire for Christ. I mean, she was sharing the gospel and went in so many to Christ, started multiple home groups, connected back to her local church that her pastor would take over. Uh, and she just was an amazing kid. Um, but she shared a lot among Muslims, which was a dangerous thing in South India. They were very resistant to the gospel. Um, and I remember one day she, um, she was out in a village sharing the gospel with some Muslims and she had been there several times and they, a group approached her and said, look, don't come here anymore. If you do, if you do, we're going to cut your throat because we've had enough. And she said, well, you can cut it now because I'll never stop. Mm. That's the kind of thing when you train properly and they see, and they just become convicted, there's nothing going to stop it. Nothing's going to stop the kingdom. And that's the kind of disciple Christ used to multiply his kingdom. And I was very humbled to be around them. I, I, they were much, they were much better than me. <laughs> wow. Joe, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many things you've said there that get Brian and I fired up, <laughs> you know, cause like, <laughs> I, I mean, I will tell you, I, I, our mentors are, are you, all the people around the world, um, the indigenous leaders that you're talking about. I mean, those are the KC uh, underground is built to be like, hey, how do we model ourselves after what God is doing uh, around the world in the nations and all the pillars of disciple making and reproducibility and uh, obedience, everything that you just touched on is really the heartbeat of even this podcast. You know, it's like, how, how are we training and equipping uh, in multiple ways our people right here? Yeah. In Kansas City and then other listeners we have uh, to be, okay, this is, this is not just for overseas. Nope. Right? These are biblical concepts. We look at the, the, you know, the Ephesus story in Acts 19, and we look at uh, but all the other things you mentioned. It's like that, that is not just for other people. That's for us as well. And so as, as you are, I know that your context hasn't been um, America all that much in the last handful of years, but um clearly you're an American and you, you know, you get the culture a little bit, like what are some of the things that you see that really hold us back from kind of living into some of those principles that you were just talking about? Um, so yeah, to be transparent, I, really, I had, when we, when we got back, I really wanted to try to implement, implement this in the American church. Cause I agree with you, Corey, a hundred percent. I think God can use it here to do the same thing. It's not just for the indigenous church overseas. Um, to be candid, um, I think some of the biggest problems within the American church, my experience, and I, and I can only speak for me, 
um, has been the failure of um, leadership within churches, because I've spoken to, to many pastors about implementing this, and their failure to realize the value in it and to come outside the box of the American system. Of come on. Amen, man. <laughs> come on. That's that that has been a it's a huge anchor. You know, when yeah. you were talking about being worried about talking too much, you can go on this one for a little while, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, I've got to be careful because I can I can make say too much. It, it, it is a it's it, it's it's really frustrating for me when I sit with with pastors and say, look, let me show you this. If we implement it inside the American church, I believe God will use it in a powerful way. And there is just no interest. There is no, if it's not to keep the business going there it is. and this way outside the box for them, way outside the box for the American context, the American way we do church, church, um, church has become business. It's a big show on Sunday, keep them coming back. And this, um, this idea of incorporating training that that is going to put accountability on congregations to be getting out sharing the gospel in their communities way outside the box and they're just not interested yeah you think you think some of that is even through that field because you, you said and i know a lot of this is disciple making from the, the harvest but also with leaders you're like okay obedience is kind of that filter if you, it's kind of weird to come back and say hey what'd you do about it who'd you share it with and if you never have an answer then you probably don't want to keep coming back. All right. Uh, so we get that. I mean, I think America, a lot of our, uh, we always have to be careful too. I try to be careful because I want, I love the church. I, you know, want the church to thrive, but it is so, well, we, uh, we're with you. We are the church. We're so you, if bro. we don't love it, you're not loving yourself very well. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Um, but you know, so some of that is like, okay, how do we find the right people? Right. right? Like, okay, I know I'm not going to stand there on a Sunday morning and in front of hundreds and, and and preach this, invite people to this, and and uh, okay, we got to find the right ones. We got to find those who are leaning in a little bit, and that's what we've been trying to do. And you're right, man. It's so easy to get to get distracted or sucked in. But I wanted to go back to that obedience piece as far as the as the filter, you know, because if you see that as something that carries over in America, just your other thoughts. Brian has his hand raised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I want because I want you to go back to that filter and talk about that. But I, I think there's another filter that I was hearing when you first started talking about your experience in India that affects the way that we see our live, work, learn, play in the West. Which is you made the statement of there was just vast lostness, and you could see it and feel it. And I'm curious if that's also part of what affects the way that we see, feel, think, the way that we share, think about obedience here, is we also sort of have this blindness that we're good. Mm -hmm. Like we've put a layer over it that's like, you know, I mean, people are fine. Like we're, because I don't know how to, I don't want to say it's just an entire ethnocentric thing, but it's like, you know, we see ourselves as good and okay and we don't look and think that people are missing this bigger narrative of the gospel and the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We're not surrounded by, quote-unquote, vast lostness. And so it affects the way that we see the people in our life that don't know Jesus and don't know how much they matter to Jesus. Or we're not surrounded by the poor. We're not surrounded by things that make us think, I need to bring Jesus into this situation. Um, so like, I don't, 
I don't want to derail the obedience conversation, but when you said that, it just it was just kind of ringing in my head of like, I don't think most people think through, I am surrounded by lostness. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think, uh, man, yeah, Brian, you nailed it, brother. I, I think one of the things, I'll be honest, overseas, some of the folks that we trained, even though they were surrounded by lostness, were in the same mode. They were in life. Uh, they were born into a culture, let's say it's predominantly Hindu, um, and they were used to that. And then when you show them in scripture uh, and begin to, you know, their role in the Great Commission and then start breaking down. One of the things we used to do in training was break down the cold, hard facts for like for like for Karnataka, where we were where we were at. A thousand people died daily, two percent evangelical. So nine hundred eighty die without Christ daily. What are you doing about it? Mm-hmm. What are you doing about that? that's your neighbors and that's your friends? Uh, it was worse in Senegal because it was only 0.2% evangelical. Point. That had great impact when they began to say, hey, that's your family, that's your neighbors. I, you know, they all have lost friends and families that have died. And and when you show them, again, you're, you're dealing with, they don't have near the knowledge that we have in the West. And so when you begin to show them scripture about, you know, what happens when you die without Christ? Well, it's eternal separation from God and hell. And, and that, that is where you, that's where these folks are going, is where your family's going. And you have the only remedy. You have the gospel. Well, there's no different in America. Here's the thing, brother. And, and again, uh, I'm speaking with my, my with two like-minded brothers. I can tell that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to be much more open to you than I would be probably any other way. But of course, a lot of people are going to hear this. So I love the church too. You know, I went back to school, went to seminary. I was ordained. So I am a pastor. So I don't want to beat up on pastors because I love them. But the church has, has um, the American church is the church of Sardis and Laodicea. We, we have lost our first love. We've become comfortable. We don't see lostness. Um, and and it, doesn't, when we, it doesn't break our heart. Yeah. And we're not equipping our brothers and sisters to get out and combat it. Mm. And so we're watching a generation of Americans perish without the gospel. And who's, who, who, can, who can do it? The government's not going to do it. It's the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And the only way, the only way that's going to happen is if you train them to see every disciple's role in it. It can't be just you, you guys as pastors. It's, it's, just, it's the same principles. You've got, you've got a train up of army of local missionaries who can go out and understand their role in the Great Commission and then be obedient to it. And through that obedience, you'll find through that training and obedience, you'll find good soil that God will multiply. And in, in my little community of Augusta County in Virginia and, and anywhere else in the States, it will work. Mm-hmm. But until pastors and leaders see the value in this, we're going to continue to, um, well, wither on the vine, and we'll lose another generation of Americans to lostness. Corey, go back to that question you were asking. I just wanted to put that lostness sort of filter on, like, when you I see hope that. that was helpful, it, it, I hope. Well, it is. I think there's a I, – I see things in sequences and, you know, whatever. That's just the way my mind works. So it's like when I see lostness – then I make a decision about it. Then there's this obedience piece that comes right. from it. I think first off it's full surrender to Jesus as Lord in every part of my life, which yeah. is like, well, that means continual obedience to what Jesus is calling me to. Cause there are still areas of my life that are not fully surrendered to Jesus. So what's the next thing, you know? So the obedience follows an understanding of there's lostness, surrender to Jesus. And then there's, continual obedience towards that surrender and then continual obedience that flows out of that. Um, anyway, I'm no, so. I, I, that's yes. 
Yeah. And I think that's a sequence of, of, of reproducible discipleship training. You take disciples who begin to see that and you train them. And that's the next, the, nat- the natural end of that uh, as that plays out should be radical obedience. And as you filter that out, that's what, that's your best, that's how you find your best people. And those uh, that we would, what we would do overseas was, is once you found those people, you take them and train them for additional four months and make them master trainers. So missionaries within their local churches, because mm-hmm. these are the ones God's really using to multiply because they're radically obedient. Now it's really, it's, it's a cool cycle to watch, but you explained it well, better than I did. It's so good. Um, yeah, there's, I feel like there's a bunch of directions I want to, uh, pick your brain on. I, one thing I'm thinking about, like, and this goes back to what Brian was saying, is there is, at least until maybe recently, the church has kind of assumed, I think, in America that it was more uh, in the center of society than we actually were. And, and we haven't been for, I mean, I'm 36. And in high school, I only knew a handful of believers in a big class, right? And so, like, I'm part of that generation uh, that I really like. I feel like ever since I've been really following Jesus since I was in high school, that's the, that's the framework that I see it from It's like, we're not the center. Like they're, I, we're the minority, but I feel like the church as a whole is, is kind of awakened to that. And then in the last few months, there has been this uh, in some ways, this explosion of spiritual hunger among people who don't know Jesus and this radical, like opening of the church's eyes to be like, Oh crap. You know, what we've been doing, like, hasn't been working. And, oh, crap, now they're not even coming for other reasons. And so part of that, I mean, underground, we've we've had a ton of people coming to us from all around the country wanting to learn. And we're, we're babies in this, you know. So we'll look to the people like Joe and say, hey, teach us teach us what you guys, what you guys are doing. Um, Way too kind. <laughs> no, but, I mean, seriously, I mean, the stories that you guys tell, it's like, man, that's that's our heart and our prayer. Is yeah. that I feel like right now in America there is the beginning of an opening, like God, like the Spirit of God is doing something, and we're about ready to see see some of this stuff, and we're poised from learning like from guys like yourself to be like, okay, what does reproducibility look like? Yeah, what does disciple making look like of indigenous leaders? What does uh, churches that emerge out of these groups? look like yeah right and so i, I just appreciate mm-hmm. everything that you're saying Man, i don't know like i don't even know there's a question in that this well, is that's <laughs> I was, talking to me. i was gonna say too it's like i don't know how much mom and dad talk to you about this uh but we're not like we're not a church in the in the prevailing model sense we consider ourselves one of those mission sending organizations so we're still going through some deconstruction and reconstruction for all of us because we've come out of prevailing model churches but we're a network a decentralized network of micro churches in Kansas City. Okay. So we've got. Um, it's it's interesting the way that you described what happened in southern India is the framework for which we're training our yep. people that are connected to the underground. So anybody that's connected to the underground in the way of we want to join you on mission, we don't call them church members or whatever. <laughs> we call them missionaries. You're a mm. missionary in this city. So if, if Joe comes to us and says, I've got this burden for, you know, maybe for you, it's like, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Southern India. And so I have a passion for this people group. And it turns out there's 3000 of them in Kansas city. Then our job 
as a centralized organization, those components are we want to coach you to go plant the gospel among that people group, make disciples, and see the church emerge. Like we don't we don't use the language of planting churches, you know. So it's like what you talked about for what happened in southern India is the framework. Like we trained missionaries who planted mm. the gospel, they made disciples, and then these little micro churches emerged. That's what we do. We train missionaries that plant the gospel, disciples emerge. Yeah. And you're the first America group I've ever heard do that. Now, maybe I'm missing it. I'm not, certainly don't know everything, but that's awesome, guys. I mean, really, I'd love to help you in any way I can. That's exciting. Yeah. That's, you know, there's, there's, I'd like to know more about that. There's definitely other groups in the States that are beginning to shift around this. Microchurch is kind of a, for some people, it's becoming a fad and a new trendy thing. You know, for us, like we don't use the language of house churches either. We're trying to take these multiplicative disciple-making principles and help, like the actually some of the language you've used today is what we want people to hear. Every disciple is a missionary. Mm-hmm. Every disciple is a disciple-maker. Now, do we all believe that and live into it fully yet? No. Like that's the that's the pathway that we're on though. And so we're trying to live into the reality and act our way into a new way of thinking. (laughs) You know, it's like we were over here on this other end of the continuum where it it was definitely, you know, every, every disciple of Jesus is a person that shows up. Now we're trying to get to a place where every disciple is a missionary. Every Mm -hmm. disciple is a disciple maker. Mm -hmm. We want to plant the gospel among unreached pockets. So we've got people engaged with uh, Algerian refugees and the rodeo circuit and the jail and the prison and um, what else? LGBTQ and uh, travel baseball leagues and neighborhoods. And we could keep going. Like these are all actual micro churches. And we didn't take a bunch of Christians and put them somewhere and say, that's the church. We said, no, you need to go live like a missionary, develop relationships, plant the gospel, and then encourage, like, as you raise up new disciples, eventually you want to be in a place where you're helping those people discover what's the part of the city Jesus has sent them to. What's the area of lostness that he's calling them to own? So that's kind of the framework. So that's why we're so excited about all the things you're saying is it's like right in line with who we are. We're not like a a group that has a building somewhere and we say, come mm-hmm. be a part of our service. <laughs> it's like our service is to equip you to send you back out. Yeah, that's that's just great. I mean, that's exciting, brother. I mean, that, that's, that, is, that, is, that was my heart when I came back to the States. I wanted to see that because it's the same model that we saw. And that, that's happening in West Africa. I didn't talk much about West Africa, but the same things that happened in India are just happening in throughout Senegal and Guinea-Bissau and now expanding into different parts of West Africa. Um, and I, it just excites me, brother, to hear what you guys, what God is doing there. And it, that can change, that can change, that can change this nation. If, if, if we embrace that. And that's what we're praying for. Yes, brother. I'm, I'm with you on that. And I, I, I just think, I do think that Christian leaders see that um, and see that model. Um, I know there's a filter and, and I know some are always, some will reject it. I mean, we had that issues overseas. Many of the leaders said, no, there was um, for different reasons. Some felt threatened by it. Some didn't want to lose their position of authority. Some said, I don't want, <clears throat> you know, the average disciple out, you know, making disciples and starting home groups and even baptizing. No, no, that's, that's my role. That takes away from my role. Um, 
So that was one of the problems we had um, that may not be as prevalent in the West. But I, I do believe if, if mm, leadership, if this model, it, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. there's a paycheck attached to it most of the time. So there's that, that, a fear mm-hmm. of like, what else am I going to do? That's true, brother. It's true. And uh, yes. And I, I'm not as deep into it as you guys are in, in the West. I, I sense that could be what it is, but um, overseas, it definitely was that. And so, um, you know, the, the problem is, is that it never works as well, at least overseas, unless the leaders are on board. You mm-hmm. want the leaders to, because just the way the culture is, you know, that the pastor has such authority in the church um, that if, if he's for it, then, then you, you, it's easier to work with the disciples and then you'll see it multiply faster. If he's against it, it becomes very difficult. And I sense the same thing here. If, well, I know it is because I've tried to take it into churches and the pastors just aren't going to do it. So it just doesn't go anywhere. Mm. It's getting them to see the value of what you guys are doing and what this training can do. This training, we used to say it was, it's a revival tool. This is a revival tool. It sounds funny, but when you, when you set, when you, when you set in mission and on mission, the church of Jesus Christ and disciples are trained and they have that zeal as the Holy Spirit works through them. There's nothing but good things that happen. There's, there's new believers. There's strengthening of the church. There's strengthening disciples come strong in the Lord. There's a zeal. There's a radicalness. There's a, there's a sense of abandon for the Lord. And there's nothing going to happen but good stuff. And God bring, expands his kingdom through that. In a religion, a religious system that our American church has is nothing but stagnation. You're not going to see growth. It's just not, it's just, well, look at it. I mean, look at it. Yeah. My church, I, um, I'm not sure that they've baptized anybody um, other than children of believers inside the church, new believer from outside the church in 10 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's staggering. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how do you, you can't keep up with the birth rate. I mean, you know, we're, we're just, again, lostness is becoming as vast as it was, um, as, as it was when, um, yeah. I was in India and Senegal. And another thing, brother, here's, here's the thing that I, I tell leaders here. I said, look, we, we're, we're, there's a generation now that aren't going to come through the doors of a church. If you think they're going to come through the doors of the church and hear the gospel, they're not going to come. You've got to get to them. And the only way to get to them is people in your church work around them. Mm-hmm. They work with them. They, some of them may be their children. And if we're not training them how to share the gospel and be Christian, to, to be salt and light in a practical way, and we're training them how to do that and hold them accountable to do it, you're not, you're not going to see revival in the States. You're not going to see revival in your community. You're not going to see church growth, not real growth. Um, but sometimes that's, it's, it's hard to get them convinced of that. So good. Hey, so specifically this question, I think I want to, we haven't touched a lot of on this yet. We've had, you know, a few weeks talking about kind of obedience-based disciple making. <laughs> I was thinking uh, about opening with that in the day. I was like, if, the, if there's a proverbial horse to beat, it's obedience-based disciple making, and we are kicking it while it's down. <laughs> yeah, we are. Um, but one thing that I think that you've touched on that we haven't touched on a ton is just the role of kind of naturally baked in accountability within systems like that. So when people come back, there really is a, uh, did you do what you said you were going to do? Uh, let's rejoice together about it. Let's hold each other accountable to do it. So what what's the point of moving to the next step if we haven't done the last step type of idea? Can you talk a little bit of what that kind of looks like, the, the, the fruit of that, the reality of that in your context you've been in? So, um, Part of the, the way we did train, the way we did trainings there, um, you guys may use a similar model. When a group comes together, training group comes together, 
we follow a three thirds principle. So the first third, when they come together, there's, uh, there's prayer. Uh, there's a recasting of the vision of why we're coming together. And then there's a time of accountability and worship. So the time of accountability is when they come in from last week, let's say we're meeting with them weekly. Okay. So your home, your homework, as we would call it is, was to share at least with five people, the gospel, uh, and train at least two believers what you learned from last week, the lesson from last week. And so, um, again, the American context may be a little different, and I know because they're not used to accountability, but there the, to uh, make demands um, wasn't that hard because that's what their pastor does to them anyway. They, they, you know, it's just a different culture. And so we, um, we initially found to uh, the best way to do it was to actually get them to write it. So we would have a form in their heart language. How many people did you share with? How many came to faith? How many people did you teach? Uh, are you, have you started a home group? And so we would uh, do that. And then we would read it out. We would, we would, everybody would know what everybody was doing. And so after about the third or fourth week of a new group, if nobody, the people that weren't sharing their faith and because it was known, everybody knew who was and who wasn't being faithful. The filter began to work. That filter of abilities began to work. And those that weren't being uh, obedient just stopped coming to the training. So then again, the filter, because that's what we're really trying. I mean, again, it goes back to the parable of the soils, not that we're leaving people behind. That's that sometimes that can be construed that we're not, we'll still work with those people and help them. Uh, but if when they stop coming to the training, we're still looking for those. The Lord said, hey, these are the ones will the ones that hear, listen, obey, put it in practice are the ones that will multiply the kingdom. And so we take those folks and we continue to work with them long term. And you spend your time with those that are most faithful without accountability. That never happens. You're never going to find the most faithful. It's uncomfortable. And you do to a certain degree, you can do it with love does put people on the spot because you want others to know what they're doing. So uh, it's easy to have a large group and just have a show of hands and say who shared with five, anybody. But when you started asking them to put it on paper, we found that they just didn't want to lie. They would, they would rather just not come back to the training than continue to be asked and not doing anything. And so here's, here's, there's some key components to multiplication. And you guys know this, you're doing it without accountability. You won't have multiplication. Mm. That's just it. Without accountability, uh, it just becomes another training. So you want you without accountability, you're not going to see that, that rapid growth that we want. And, and you're also not going to see, you're not going to have the filtering process where you find your best, those that are being faithful. And those that will multiply and those that you want to continue to work with and spend your time. I mean, our Lord did that. He, he took a select group. He whittled it down and then he trained them. And then in Luke nine, we see that he, he sends them out. Right. And, but look, and I think it's in verse, uh, I don't know, verse 10 of Luke nine, somewhere in there. It's, he, he took an account from them when they came back. He said he took them aside and he took an account. So the Lord's doing accountability. You have to have accountability or you're just, you're not going to see multiplication. Yeah. Let me ask you one other question. I was talking with Corey about this. I think it was on Monday. We were having a conversation about disciple-making movements, like what you're talking about, what we want to see, this multiplication principle, uh, and just going out. So I'm coming at this from another angle. How does does obedience-based disciple-making, in your experience, how do you keep it just from being about getting people into the kingdom and about their continual growth towards obedience the rest of their life. It's this constant movement into the rhythms and the ways of Jesus. And I say that because it's like part of what we're asking is like, who'd you share it with? Who'd you share it with? What's the next thing? Who'd you, you know, 
but I know that it's beyond that. It can just sound like that, I think, sometimes, where it's like what we want is like new people in the kingdom and they go tell somebody else and they get in. But like there's a journey beyond just that initial moment. So how does obedience continue to play into their life? That's a great question, Brian. I think um, one of the because that was a concern. We we don't want to be focused on numbers because that's what really if you're not careful, that's what you're accused of. You're just trying to get numbers. Yeah. Um, And so. Uh, we stayed always stayed away from that. I, here, here is always the problem, uh, and I think it's the same way here. I know, I know in the Western thinking, success is judged by numbers, right? So usually, and so in the missions, in missions, I think your mom and dad could probably talk and speak into this as well. Is uh, that's how many times success is judged? Um, we always try to stay away from that because we understood that very quickly when you began to train them, train disciples. Um, that at least in, in, in the indigenous in India and in South India and West Africa, they knew so little of the Bible. I mean, so little. So we realized very quickly there had been no sanctification process here. They, 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 they may be saved. Sometimes we were concerned that some of them weren't even, some of them, some of them were saved during the training. They thought they were saved, <laughs> but the gospel is such a key part of the training that they hear it several times through the training that I can, I can give you many accounts of them saying that I came to faith in this training. I never really understood the gospel. And so we realized early on that this, and we used to tell leaders when we were asking to come into their churches and train is look, yes, we, we want to expand and yes, we want the gospel to go out. Of course, that's, you know, that's why we're here. But we also realize that to you're, you are as a leader, as a shepherd, um, your flock, your flock needs to be fed. This training will feed them. It will root them in the word of God. And through that rooting of the word of God and understanding it, the offspring of that will be obedience, mm-hmm. which means a strengthening of the church and a growing of the church. So it, it's really multifaceted. You've, you've got a, you've got one, the goal is to get the gospel out to those who need to hear. And the other goal is to strengthen the church, strengthen it in the roots, uh, in the word of God. It also begins to set up a bulwark when persecution comes because if they're not rooted in the word, mm. we know persecution is going to come. We don't tell them that in the beginning, but we persecutions. There's a lesson in persecution in this training because they begin to see very quickly. It comes the more that you root them in the word through training and through solid discipleship training, even though the ultimate goal is to expand the kingdom. The other goal is the other part of that goal. The other arm of that is to root the church in the word and get them ready for the storm that will come so they can stand and be that light in a dark place. So we gear the lessons that way. We, we the lessons are to strengthen us and help a sanctification process for the disciple, but it's also geared to multiply outside the church. Mm-hmm. Joe, well, thanks, man. Well, we have, uh, we one have one last question. Oh, Brian, yeah. I don't know. It's the, the last question that we ask everybody. Yeah, that was literally what I was going to say. Oh, we'll say it. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Joe, it's... Um, as we're running through some of these same things here, you know, within underground and try in that vision for Kansas city, we just like to ask our guests if the Lord would have any word that he's pressed upon you or anything that you would just have to encourage us or to say to us as a like-minded group of people here in the States. Wow. Well, um, since I know a little bit more, um, what you guys are doing, I would, I would just, I would say this brother, press on. I, I, um, um, the, I know uh, based upon what the Lord has showed me that 
training a national disciple to be a missionary to his people is the most effective way to multiply the kingdom for his glory. It is absolutely the most effective way. It's biblically sound, and if done right, um, God will just multiply. Um, the, the best way to multiply the church in America is to train up American missionaries within the church and do the same thing. And that's what you guys are doing. And so I would just, I just encourage you. And if I can help in any way, I mean, I'm, I'm, look, I'm a nobody. I don't have all the right answers. I'm thankful God has used my family the way he has. And we want to continue. We're involved, still very involved in, in West Africa and multiplication training. Um, and we're continuing to press it out farther east. And one day we can talk about that maybe, but I just, you guys, what you're doing is wonderful. And I am going to be praying for you. I want to help you in any way I can. And uh, I thank you for your faithfulness. Mm. Yeah. Thanks so much, Joe. We so appreciate it. And we will circle back around to get you back on this podcast again soon. Well, Hey, I'd love it guys. Thank you. I've never been on a podcast. I feel very humbled. I'm just an old country boy from Rockham County, Virginia. So that ain't, that ain't, that ain't thing. Uh, we're nobodies too, man. We're just following the best somebody. So we'll talk again Amen, soon. Amen, brother. Hey, God bless. And I'll be praying for you and keep me updated. Will you? I'd love to know how it's going. Absolutely. We will. I need y'all to teach me. I want to do that here. So yeah. maybe we can talk more about that. Let's make it happen. Yes, I'm all, about <laughs> all right, guys, God bless you. And I'll be praying for you. Uh, Thanks, Joe. Talk to you later, bud.